let's continue worshipping. Amen. As we read this amazing scripture, it's really the centre of the whole letter that we're studying together. So I'm going to read from Philippians 1 verse 27 through to 2.18. Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then, whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. That could have been a summary of Dave Holden's brief, couldn't it? That's the next bit as well. Don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. This will be a sign to them that they're going to be destroyed, but that you are going to be saved even by God himself. For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, this. You've given not been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. So we are in this struggle together. You've seen my struggle in the past, and you know that I'm still in the midst of it. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together? In the spirit, are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out for your own only for your own interests. Take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave. He was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's or a slave's death on the cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honour and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Dear friends, you always followed my instructions when I was with you. And now that I'm away, it's even more important. Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. Do everything without complaining and arguing, so that no one could criticize you. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Hold firmly to the word of life. Then on the day of Christ's return, I will be proud that I did not run the race in vain and that my work was not useless. But I will rejoice even if I lose my life, pouring it out like a liquid offering to God, just like your faithful service is an offering to God. And I want all of you to share that joy. Yes, you should rejoice, and I will share your joy. Bit of sort of literary, literary understanding now, okay? You're all really bright people, so this will be okay for you. Right, so why do I regard this as one section rather than the chapters? Well, in literary terms, and it's important for the building of Paul's teaching, this is one section, and it's using a literary device called a chiasmus, which is <coughs> a construction whereby you have one truth 
then another truth, which, and then come back to the first truth. Okay? So, you get A, an appeal. Live as citizens worthy of the gospel. Then, B, the example of Jesus. And C, the appeal is we pray. Work out your own salvation. Another way of saying, live worthy of the gospel. See that? Okay. And actually, there's other things that show it. He says in the first bit, whether I'm with you or not, in the, when he comes back to A repeated, he says, whether in my presence or my absence. Very clear that that's the literary construction that Paul <laughs> is uh, taking here, which is why I've taken it as one section. Uh, and the centre of this chiasmus is where the um, emphasis lies. The Christ example, the supreme exemplar of what it means to be God and human, the pattern laid down for emulation, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and following his pattern is the matrix for what it means to be, to live as citizens and work out salvation. See that? Okay, so the centre is, of this construction, Christ's sacrificial life. The, what surrounds that is working out what it means to be a believer in community in, the, in, a, in a dark world today. That's what the start is, two A's, but the B is the centre. This is the motivation, this is the example, this is how you do it. Do you, do you get that? Is that, that alright? Okay, come on, talk to me. You know, it's a bit lonely out here on the front with no one, no one answering your questions. Well, you like to be talking and nobody ever answer. Okay. I know some of you find that great, but uh, so it's this is a very simple chiasmus. Often in scripture they are much more complex, like A, B, C, D, C, B, A. You know, it goes like that. And this is not just something for 21st century, to use an English term, forgive me from elsewhere, literary nerds, you know, <laughs> that is someone who just gets very occupied with and very concentrating on specialist areas. Actually helps us understand the Bible. Okay? And it was actually helps us see the main point of a biblical teaching narrative. Okay? Helps us with that. Other than just taking verses possibly out of context, which I'm sure you never do. <laughs> but sadly, a lot of our teaching does that. We sort of extract a verse from somewhere, whereas, and that's why it's so good to go through a book of the Bible like this. So again, thanks for those who suggested it, uh, because it shows you, you don't just say, we must shine like lights in the world. We say, all the working out of Christian community is founded on the fact that Christ lived a particular way. You see? And it makes it easier to understand, believe it or not. It also was helpful for the largely oral cultures to which the Bible was originally written to help them remember and retain it. Most of the parables of Jesus, if you think of them as simple stories, they also have a poetic structure just like this. Most of the parables do. Read Kenneth Bailey, um, Jesus of the Middle Eastern Eyes, or Poet the Peasant, the Fruit Peasant Eyes. And this helps in similar cultures today, maybe 70% of the world. And devices are needed to help people retain scripture in appropriate language and culture. This is for how the scriptures were written. Remember, scripture would have been read out loud rather than studied privately, and it would also have been memorized how it was in the New Testament. Uh, when it says, Paul says to Timothy, give yourself to 
reading out loud the scriptures publicly. It's amazing how we've lost that often in our church life. We just reading a verse or something like that, or just that. this is important that you read it out. Sometimes I, when I'm preaching, I read the scripture at the end so that people are left with the scripture, not left with my theory, and they test out whether what I've said is in the Bible. So there's different ways of doing that, but it was important that these letters were read out loud. The rest of chapter 2, which I haven't read, are examples in Timothy and Epaphroditus of following the Christ example of chapter 2. Then in chapter 3, to answer another issue, Paul uses an example of himself as following Christ's pattern servanthood and uh, I just to confuse the people that are operating the <coughs> rejecter I did a session 2b which is this is session 2a session 2b I'll decide at the time whether to add it to tomorrow or add it to today as we're going out for a meal and to add it to tomorrow okay because <laughs> you wouldn't want to be delayed okay that sort of stand alone, those two examples, and I'll add that to it. So, all right, you got that idea? Yeah. Okay. So, the first section then is live out your heavenly citizenship. Paul is conscious of the context, as I said this morning, of citizenship. Philippi was a colony of Rome. They were citizens of another place. In verse 23, he refers to that citizenship and makes it even more explicit in chapter 3, verse 20. We are citizens of heaven, where Jesus Christ lives. We citizens, we belong somewhere else, and we're working out our citizenship of where we belong here in a foreign land. That's the imagery here. And the central notion of this passage, citizenship, is rhetorically Powerful as Paul writes from the centre of the Roman world to the centre of a Roman colony to a people who before meeting Christ were self-consciously Roman citizens above all else. This will find them experiencing times when the gospel coheres with Roman life, living as exemplary Roman citizens. At other times it will see them clash with the Roman world as the gospel threatens Roman religious and social ideas and life. And such a clash is seen in this passage. That's your life. You live as citizens of another place, though you also, insofar as you can, work out what it is to be a good citizen of wherever you live. So you can be a good citizen of Germany, but when that offends being a citizen of heaven, becoming a citizen of heaven takes priority. And that's how we live. And uh, that's what Paul is arguing here. And in this chapter, he is ripping apart the whole structure of Roman social life. Because um, the Roman social life was all based on honouring people because of their important position and people were striving to get important positions. Paul is saying, I want to rip that out. That's not to mark you. Even though it is how you always lived. Because you were living in that culture. We'll come on to that in a minute. This involves preserve, so preserving in you, in, in the unity of the spirit or with one spirit. It's not clear in the English language whether it's a small s or a big s. <laughs> no, thank you, Joyce, don't worry. It's sharing the gospel in the face of false ideas or pagan challenges, very relevant in Europe today. It's not being intimidated by those who oppose you and persecute you. And you are together with Paul in this struggle, Paul says. You saw me suffering Philippi, he says to these people. They did, he was in prison, he was beaten. You were in the same battle, in the same team, 
and your struggles that you're still going under are similar to mine, Paul says. So it's not just praying for or advising the persecuted church, we are one with them. Needed today for the emerging generation in the Western world who find it hard to stand against modern trends. Which means that we live, as I said this morning, not condemning the world, but living differently. So, Paul uses important metaphors here. He's in prison chained to a soldier, he uses metaphors from athletics and military life. Okay, those are two metaphors he uses. Stand as an army in unity. You only asked me if I was going to do anything on spiritual warfare, David. You didn't ask me if I was going to do anything on standing, but you said it all, so I don't have to go through this quick. Okay. Standing as an army in unity, as in Ephesians chapter 6, you just heard. Contending, fighting. They're words that would have been used both in the military and in athletics. Paul like, is like a commanding officer or an athletics coach. Actually, it's surprising he uses this language. At least the athletics ones. Because the Jews disapprove totally of uh, Greek athletics events. Okay? Partly because they ran naked. But, uh, but also they felt it was in honour of the gods and so on. But Paul is so contextualised, you know, he's become like those not under the law, to reach those not under the law become all things to all men, that he uses metaphors that they relate to rather than his culture would relate to. So he uses athletics and soldier metaphors. A good friend of mine, I'm not going to give his name publicly because this is what he said privately and I wouldn't want to quote someone if they didn't say it publicly. Uh, but he's one of the leaders in sort of missional church, um, very much on the same page as we are in lots of these things, but very good commentator on modern cultural trends. And he was referring to two Timothy, where Paul's contrast being an athlete or a soldier or a farmer with being a civilian. And what he said is the danger in millennials and generation. Z, all these levels of generations, is even if they're believers, they tend to be civilians rather than soldiers, athletes. That's not some of you in those generations there, and I know you're the exception. But there is a danger of that. There's a danger of not being able to fight for things in the same way. Now we're going to be understanding of that. We understand actually most of them have been through a lot tougher time than us baby boomers had it. Okay? So we're not this is not condemnation, but it is something we've got to do is to train the next generation to be soldiers, athletes and farmers. Okay? Understand? We've got to do that. Because it wouldn't be naturally within their culture. And I thought it was a very perceptive remark. So they still love the kingdom of God, but would rather work for a charity than plant a church. Now, there's nothing wrong with working for a charity. That is part of extending the kingdom of God. But there's something about the raw passion of church planting which you're involved in that is actually declining <coughs> amongst us. It's also much harder now than when we did it in the 1990s, some of our old, older guys here. Yeah, we did it in the 1990s. <coughs> it, was, it was easier then than it is now in Europe. Okay? But it's tougher in lots of other countries. So, the appeal here to the whole church, inclusive of slaves, women, children, free people, and the elite, rather than Roman citizenship, which was reserved for the elite. With the above in mind, to use the term citizenship is an egalitarian, radical, and socially subversive notion. 
telling people in a layered society from all spheres of life that they are all citizens of heaven under the patronage of the true Lord, Jesus Christ. That's the church where social differences, positional differences, historical differences, <coughs> racial differences are gone because we're all one in Christ and we are determined to reflect that in who we are and yet the church often doesn't exhibit that. Sorry, you're so encouraging. I preached this morning. I thought I'd be a bit hard as well. <laughs> okay. So... So the gospel, therefore, is not a statement of something to believe in, but a lifestyle of attitudes, actions, and speech. A colony of heaven, inviting people to see what God's new creation looks like. That's what Paul is saying. This is what God's new creation looks like, where all status has gone. People are honoured because of who they are in Christ, not honoured because of their position in the world. Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 talks about the parts that in the world have least honour and the church have greater honour. We don't just serve the poor, we honour the poor. <coughs> this is what it's to be, a colony of heaven. And this demonstration of an alternative society, what God's new creation looks like, is probably often the way for secular Europeans to first encounter God rather than simply by preaching on street corners when they won't listen to okay. that, that bladder at least agrees with me <laughs> Okay. Um, it's, 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 and so they're encountering God's society. Now you then have to preach the gospel. It's not that people come in and just like Okay, because you still have to give a gospel apologetic so they stand firm on faith. But the way in often is through lifestyle and demonstrating something different rather as a church planting in Europe, rather than how it would have been 50 years ago or how it is even in some parts of the world today. We just go preach. Gospel engagements obviously must still involve <coughs> apologetics and proactive evangelism. And intimidation in uh, Philippi was not psychological or social rejection as in the West today, but in a world grown to violent force. And there was no protection, as I said this morning, because there were no Jews, so they couldn't be seen as a part of the, Jew, the Jewish cult. And the perseverance of the Christian faith, Christian face of persecution, served as prior evidence of the relatively relative internal destinies of the believers and their enemies. And it's a gift of God both to believe and to suffer. That's hard, isn't it? That it's the gift of God both to believe and to suffer. His name, then there's an exhortation regarding attitudes. <coughs> Paul is still holding back on directly addressing the issue causing the division in Philippi, skillful teacher, but now focuses on the attitudes that were underlying it negative attitudes of selfish ambition, the same as some Roman preachers in chapter 1 and some today. It was a common problem in Roman culture and politics, which went for prestige or honour, commended ambition and status, but that um, selfish ambition is named in scripture as a work of the flesh, and James talks about how selfish ambition caused problems among the scattered believers following the persecution in Jerusalem, James is right. <coughs> and this does not rule out ambition for the success of the gospel, but it, right, it rules out place-seeking ambition. Is it ruled out in you? <coughs> I found this so challenging. 
So then vain conceit, the glory of position, prestige, power and possessions. So prevalent, prevalent in much of the Western church today. And selfish preoccupation with your own interests and affairs and the exclusion of serving others. This is handled relationally by appeal to our relationship with Christ, if there be any comfort in Christ, then any love, which is probably the love of the Father, and any fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Uh, so he appeals to the Trinity and then appeals to Paul himself. The gospel is to affect attitudes. Here is not a problem of false teaching, like in Galatians, but of non-gospel character and attitude which can equally undermine the gospel because then we're no different from the political or the commercial world around us. Allowing these features to characterise us rather than the humility of the kingdom of God affects the gospel. <coughs> so, Paul is joyful. He said, it will complete my joy if you got united. Okay? I can understand that. Surely, lots of churches that have done over the years. Yeah, you love them. They're great churches. But it's a few things that will complete your joy. <laughs> and Paul appeals for that. And what completes his joy is not released from prison leaders of this church sorted themselves out. And the antidotes to these attitudes were humility. Now, you know, we understand humble's good, don't we? That culture didn't. And the word in the culture associated weakness, servility, and therefore shameful. On a shame culture, and humility is shameful. The antidote was breaking down all elitism and status and regarding others above yourselves. The word above yourselves is the same word that has been used for the authorities who are over you or those who are over you in the Lord. What it's saying is, in your servant attitude, regard other people as if they were those over you in the Lord. That's what Paul is saying. Okay. And so he, he was probably using leadership terms, ironically, challenge their thinking, particularly that of the leaders. Because it's often Christian leaders in church and in workplace that this section is particularly applicable to, or it's relevant to all. But as a true Christian leader, I want to take this to the men. Please join me. So, emulate Jesus Christ as the centre of this whole section. Alongside other scriptures that draw out the theology of who Christ is, John 1, Colossians 1, just read to us earlier, Hebrews 1. This is a profound piece of writing. When it gets described as a hymn, it doesn't mean it's like a modern hymn book, nor even a Greek or Semitic hymn with a poetical meter. But it's actually poetic in character <coughs> and the creedal, that's something that's like a creed to us that we believe in meaning. See, it's good for us to read the creeds sometimes. They're quite poetic as well. They help us remember the firm foundation of our faith. Then we used to have a statement of faith in New Frontiers that when things normally went into our new wineskin, we had to introduce one. And we simply said, we hold to the ancient creeds 
justification by faith in the Protestant Reformation, the Evangelical Alliance Statement of Faith and the Lausanne Covenant. We didn't go into detail beyond that. But these creedal <coughs> statements are important. Okay, they preserve us from heresy. And I've had to use that definition of faith to sign bits of paper to get people to get into other countries and get their visas and things. Your statement of faith, and well, I've already got one now, so I can send it in. And it's important that we have these. These are what would be referred to as written in blood. Okay. Don't deviate from. And this hymn is like that. It's like a creed, but it's written in poetry. And <coughs> so it probably wasn't something in early church liturgy or a quote from an existing piece of writing as has been suggested, but without clear evidence. It's almost certainly a creative piece of poetry from Paul himself, like his doxologies elsewhere. <coughs> and it neatly fits into the rhetoric of this letter, emphasizing the very things that Paul wanted from the Philippians self-denial, service, humility, and perseverance in suffering. <laughs> Two parts of the hymn is the downward movement of the divine into human form, incarnation, service, and the cross, without ever ceasing to be divine. The scripture doesn't say he laid aside who he was, it's he laid aside all the trappings of who he was, didn't use those to get his own way. So, um, and then a sudden shift to God as the subject of the poem. So God highly exalted him. That's the upward movement. The downward movement and the upward movement. And it brings the example of Christ against false models of seeking power. Contrast, therefore, the kingdom of God with the kingdom of Caesar. Form of God to form of a slave and in human form. Christ functioned not according to coercive power, as authorities do so often, but took on the role of a slave to save the world. refuse to follow worldly power paradigms. That's what Bladder, or one of the many things that Bladder was talking about last night, he refused to remain king. Now, to have a king, I mean, to overthrow the Romans, if you don't have to ever supply the army with food, you'll be doing pretty well. If you've got someone who can make food miraculously. So, they wanted him to, but he refused that power paradigm. The same thing happened when the devil came to him in the wilderness. He said, use your power paradigm, your power, your external power to get the things that you want. Jesus refused it. So often we can use those things if we have any. And so he he, he took on the role of a slave, he humbled himself, refused to exploit his divine status of power, which he still had. So the Philippians are to have among themselves that same attitude as Jesus in his free-willed renunciation of his heavenly power and glory, so as we renounce all status and external trappings of power. That's Christian leadership. Christ, God becoming man, the supreme example of renunciation of status, in functional, but not, forgive this word, ontological terms. In other words, he never ceased to be God. He was God all the time, 
in his essence he was always God, but he refused to use that the status things associated with being God to get his way. Sorry, I'm being a bit complicated, I know. But you're all theologians. So so the Philippians, so Christ, God becoming man. Yeah. So it was into service, sacrifice, selflessness, humiliating death to identify with the whole of humanity. There's no person, however low in status, that Christ didn't identify with. And he became a slave and died on the cross. He identified with the whole world and served the whole world to redeem it. Have this attitude in you, therefore, which was also in Christ Jesus. Having the mindset of Christ is the way to live the whole of the Christian life. Hence, Paul is correcting faulty mindsets shaped by false ideas drawn from Greek, Roman, and Jewish life, all of which draw on external status and power, as does every culture. You know, I've seen lots of cultures in the world, I've not found one yet that don't, doesn't use external symbols of power. And Christian leadership is always to be countercultural. Jesus said, not like it works in the nations, in the Gentiles. Remember that scripture Jesus said? Yet in my experience, as I go to lots of different cultures, <laughs> Christian leadership, including my own, seems to draw its models from whatever culture the person is in. This wonderfully describes Christ. He is in God's form and continues to be. Hence, being in the form of God. It's present, continuous. But then emptied himself so as not to exploit equality with God, but demonstrate God in a different form. Not only that Christ, it's not only that Christ demonstrated what he was to be a servant, but he was still perfectly reflecting God. God, we celebrate the servant king, Jesus. But remember, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And therefore, we celebrate that God serves us as well. This is who God is. Jesus then took on the position of a servant to humanity and experienced the death of a slave, crucifixion. Slaves and criminals are not crucified. Sometimes the Alpha course starts with why did, why did Jesus die? Popular text question is why did Jesus crucify? It wasn't just that he died, he took the slaves for all outward status gone, all shame fully upon him when he hung naked like a slave on a cross. Mocked public shame, public curse. It's hard to get a modern equivalent. One African African American theologian has written a book called The Cross and the Lynching Tree. He said the nearest you can get to it, he said, is when black people in the United States would be blamed for something they've never done, no trial, then stuck up on a tree and they died. And the whole town would come and mock, including many white Christians. So much stuff has got into our Christian church. But it's a very powerful book. revealing God, who he is, <coughs> he demonstrated true divinity, he 
refusing to exploit his power, to hold on to it, to use his supremacy to overthrow his world. Universal submission will ultimately come because God has exalted him and restored him to his glorious cosmic status, not through violent overthrow, but through humble submission. And so in becoming a human, not just man, the word here is human being. Again, English language is quite sufficient for that. Being man for both. It's understood. He identifies with all humanity, Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free. And then God hyper exalted him. Jesus is now not only the pre existent Son of God, he has always been also the world's Messiah and Saviour. Christ is exalted from earthly servitude into his rightful place as Lord over the whole universe and Saviour to every ethnicity, every social status. That's who we serve. God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. And it says that, that the word there in Greek is in order that. In order that every person will submit to him. It's missiological to the whole world and evangelistic and it was motivation for Paul to pursue his mission to the Gentiles. Why do we go to unreached people groups? Because Christ is highly exalted and every knee must bow to him. Do you understand? Why must we go to secular Europe? Because Christ is exalted and every knee must bow to him. It's a missiological imperative. Even before, it is a judgment statement on those who refuse to bow the knee. It's both, but it's first a missiological statement of the necessity of the gospel going to every ethnic group. <coughs> In order that, terrifying picture to those who oppose Jesus as Lord, especially those who abuse power to subjugate others. They will be forced into defeat and then submitted to their ultimate fate. We're seeing again the rising of the grotesque pictures of worldly empire, as in the book of Daniel. You know, every so often there are evil manifestations of the empire spirit. From right through from the Tower of Babel was the first manifestation, right through all those empires that Daniel describes in grotesque terms. It's gone right through history. Sadly, sometimes Christians identify with it, with the strong man empire spirit that comes in waves across the world. But it is totally anti-Christ and something that we have a different way of living So, Paul now returns to theme A. Remember the chiasmus, Paul now returns to theme A, demonstrated by similar expressions as before, in my presence or absence, shining like lights in the world, living worthy of the gospel. It's the consequence of living the Christ pattern. How we work out church life and evangelize the world with a servant attitude. Is your evangelism? Your evangelism serving attitude. As well as your church leadership, you serve people in order to win them. Or you use outward trappings of power. You know, I rejoice that celebrities get saved, but that's not the pattern for winning people to Christ. Do you understand? We, we lose the point of James when he says, you know, someone 
Paul comes in and say, I'll oh, sit down there on the floor. Someone rich or a celebrity comes in, so we may make a great big deal of them. We, we shouldn't be like that. It's using outward trappings. A hallelujah they get saved. Hallelujah when they can be used to spread their gospel within their community. But let's not fall for celebrity culture ourselves. Because it's contrary to this whole thing. And so, living lives worthy of the gospel is the consequence of living the Christ pattern. How we work out church life and evangelise the world. Because there's a therefore at the beginning. Because of the Christ pattern. Therefore, it's with that attitude that you evangelise and leave your churches and plant churches. And he uses, again, a wonderful, he says, my beloved, he says, full of love, a derivative of agape, highly intimate term, the language of family, of fathering. And he said, then you work out salvation by God's power, working it out, working it out in unity and witness. The patterns of the Christ hymn fully embraced, as he calls us to do, do it in fear and trembling. I tell you, when I read Philippians, I understand why you're doing Philippians. When I studied this for three months, I understand why you do it in fear and trembling. Lest you use wrong trappings instead of servant-heartedness to preach the gospel and do Christian leadership. I fear. I look at my own life. Look at, you know, what's my ambition? You? Do you ever look at yourself? Examine our own motives. Work it out. Also, emulate the obedience of the servant king. The term obedience would grate on Roman citizens or an audience who valued their freedom, just like Western personal autonomy today. Obedience not very popular, is it? Working out implies effort. The Christian life is not passive. It's effort for God, but with the power that he supplies. We work out an already granted salvation as God works within us. It flows into community and mission. This is not just personal, lone godliness. It is actually worked out in community and mission. That's the context. And... Renounce grumbling and disputes or arguing, obviously another of the problems in Philippi. Do all things, he says, without grumbling or arguing. All things. <laughs> it applies to every aspect of our corporate and missional life. Don't grumble at yourself, do you? It's, it's missional and corporate. And you de de demonstrate a different character from the status-seeking, immoral, selfish world. As a family reflects family values, so we should reflect the character of Christ. Shine like stars, Paul's thinking is missional. Like Jesus taught that we're the light of the world, so conduct yourself worthy of being the light of the world what he's saying here. So in conclusion, some points to ponder and reflect. It's almost scary when we look at the circumstances. It's so contrary to many models of leadership in the church with external authority, position, titles. And Jesus said, don't have titles. Which organization in history has been the most creative in making new titles? don't have them. Big desk in a big office. Pastor as chief executive rather than a servant shepherd. Because our churches, our organisations primarily not family. And why you do that? 
on the finger. Okay. All the rest of the teaching, but this is this particular thought. Somebody referred to the Bible we use to run literature and history, so the younger ones may learn about and read books. And uh, the I feel like that when I read events that I remember in history books. So the <laughs> But I honestly feel that one of the reasons God led us to close that big Bible reading for the Business Christian Conference in the UK and probably in Europe was to keep us free of celebrity culture. It wasn't the main reason. The main reason was so that we have to get involved in world mission. Rather than gathering, we go. We scatter rather than gather. It's time to scatter and it's time to gather, says an Ecclesiastes. I also think a byproduct was that none of us got heard of much. <laughs> and that's a good place to be. <laughs> when nobody's much heard of you. But you do the work of the kingdom. But you're not famous. Paul, Paul says, unknown, getting well known. Okay. We could even use biblical terminology like apostle, which I believe I use. I've written a book on it, so I better. But we can use it in a coercive way, which is not really our intention at all. I'm going to get apostolic with me now. Don't behave yourself, you know? No, no. Even the term leadership, rather than shepherd or servant. The only... The word leader is not used much in the New Testament. The shepherd and servant are. It's used a couple of times. Screen and say you mustn't use it. But, and also, leader is so culturally endowed in wherever you are working that it's a bit unwise to use it anyway. You understand what I'm saying there? Because people in every culture have a picture of what a leader is. Other expressions, not necessarily in a leadership context, and not wrong in themselves. But we need to think about them in the light of this Christ here being rigid. Don't, I've heard things, don't become a doormat to people. That's what I can kind of say. Now, don't let them walk all over you. Yeah, I do. But be careful. Be sure you have enough me time. <laughs> As I've got a little bit older, I do value personal space. Never used to. I never understood what people were talking about. But now, <laughs> <laughs> but it's just be careful. Jesus did have personal time with his father, but sometimes it got interrupted like that. 5,000 men plus women and children followed him. <laughs> that was their going, take going aside to rest for a while. Come aside and rest for a while. And by the way, feed 20,000 people. Okay. So we, we just have to be a bit careful. <coughs> These all need to be tested as the motivation by this example. Nothing wrong with them. You do need time to recharge and so on. Have we died to personal selfish ambition? My own experience, I remember, because I used to be in kind of a you know, very senior job in banking before having government service, traveling all over the world, negotiating massive loans. And then I remember, after I'd gone full time in the church, in my office, 
kneeling down on the floor, saying to the Lord, that our church will only small church then, and only serve a tiny area on the northeastern property. So I said, Lord, do you want me to serve a small church? In a small estate, in a small town, in a small island off the coast of, uh, coast of Europe, for the rest of my life, and never travel again, that's fine by me. I remember that moment so well. But I was an ambitious guy. <coughs> that chief executive of the bank that I worked for took me out to lunch when I was leaving the bank then. He said, I can understand you giving up the money. And he was a very wealthy man. He said, I can understand you giving up the money. But knowing you, how did you give up the ambition? Hmm. And God led me. He tested things. Every time I've been asked to do something, it's a bit of a shock. Oh, do you want to pray for me? If you identify with having to work this out in fear and trembling because you know the test it is, and you want to die to personal ambition and renounce that way of working. But I've had to every time I've studied this in the last three months. But I have had to. Will you just please stand and I'm going to pray for you. for the success of the gospel but we ask you Lord deliver us from success seeking for our own position Lord I pray Lord make us servants of, your, of the church where you put us but let us not be just ambitious for the success but ambitious for the success of the gospel rather than the numbers in our church. Lord, I pray. Lord, we want fruit. Lord, help us to die to selfish ambition and be willing to serve your people. Lord, make us genuine servant leaders. Lord, I pray. To reflect the Christ pattern. <coughs> Lord, please. Oh, God. Holy Spirit, come upon us right now. Lord, deal with anything time when we don't, when we don't put other people as above ourselves. Where we look out for ourselves first. Oh God, set us free, Lord, I pray. <coughs> Please, don't give up your ambition to see the gospel spread and thousands to be converted where you are. But give up the ambition that, that would make you something because of that. Father, I pray, Lord, change our hearts and enable us to live free of these things. Lord, follow the example of Christ. And Lord, May our churches be truly demonstrations of the kingdom of God on earth, of the citizenship of heaven. Lord, I pray. Lord, we ask. Help us to, even if we only have a few people in the church branch, help us to be their servants. Not constantly calling them to our vision, but Lord, to your vision to reach the world, and Lord, for us to serve them, enable them to do that. Lord, I pray. Lord, equip us for that. Lord, we ask. Holy Spirit, change us from the inside and enable us 
to live for your glory and be a slave. Lord, may we, would we, may we be able to write with honesty our name, slave of Jesus Christ. Slave of Jesus Christ. Lord, doing his bidding and serving his people. Lord, I pray, please do that in us. Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.